Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird or wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Daniel Buzo about honey for wounds. And later, with Raylene Summer about the Rhythmatron. But first up, here's the news about walking. Walk fast for your life. An international team of researchers led by Sydney University have discovered that walking faster is correlated with a healthier heart and longer life. They've found you don't have to walk more often than usual, but merely walking faster than you usually do gives the best results. The older you are, the bigger gains you make by walking faster than is comfortable. A collaboration between the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Centre and Faculty of Medicine and Health, the University of Cambridge, University of Edinburgh, University of Limerick and the University of Ulster linked the data from mortality records with the results of 11 population-based surveys in England and Scotland between 1994 and 2008, in which over 50,000 participants reported how fast they walked fast, average or slow, the research team then adjusted for factors such as the total amount and intensity of all physical activity taken, age, gender and body mass index. How fast is a fast pace? The team recommend walking fast enough to make you a little out of breath or sweaty. It's not about reaching a particular speed, but about deliberately walking faster. Gender and body mass index didn't appear to make any difference to the results. They also found that walking fast did not decrease your risk of cancer. With walking at a slow pace taken as the baseline, for most people, walking at an average pace was found to be associated with a 20% reduction in the risk of death by all causes, while walking at a brisk or fast pace was associated with a reduction in your risk of death from all causes of 24%. People under 60 years of age who walked at an average pace experienced a reduction in their risk of heart disease of 24%, while those who walked briskly reduced their risk of heart disease by only 21%. For older people, walking faster was better for reducing their risk of heart disease by quite a lot. People aged over 60 years experienced a 46% reduction in risk of death from cardiovascular causes, and fast-paced walkers experienced a 53% reduction. The conclusion of the report is that walking regularly is good for your health, and pushing yourself a little faster when you walk is very good for your health, as long as you don't overdo it. 
The article was titled, Self-Rated Walking Pace and All-Cause Cardiovascular Disease and Cancer Mortality, Individual Participant Pooled Analysis of 5,225 Walkers from 11 Population British Cohorts, and was published in a special issue of the British Journal of Sports Medicine dedicated to walking and health. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now we return to Honey. Daniel Buzo is a PhD student at the Infection, Immunity and Innovation I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. He's working on the therapeutic properties of Manuka honey. I began by asking him, is his research focused on the action of Manuka honey in wounds? So I'm interested in actually understanding how the bacteria respond to Manuka honey in particular. So what I want to get a better understanding is how it's actually working to kill bacteria, because that's still something we're not so sure about. You can get manuka honey and put it on wounds to keep bacteria away and to stop the wounds getting infected and we've known that works but we've never really understood why it works yeah we have some ideas of of why it works but we're really interested in the fact that where most microorganisms can develop resistance to the killing effects of antimicrobials and antibiotics they're not actually able to become resistant as far as what we've found in the laboratory. And it makes sense because honey has existed for, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of years. And, um, you know, the bacteria have always been in the same environment as honey, yet there's still no detectable resistance that we know to the honey in terms of the bacteria. Yeah. Does that mean that the manuka factor in the honey is changing over time? We're not so sure. We can look at manuka honey samples and kind of test some of the chemical components over time. And what we found is that it's pretty stable if you store it in the dark and at four degrees. But we're just more interested in what about this particular type of honey because it's shown to be more potent than many other honeys. And it's the one that's used in the clinic at the moment. So how do you study the effects of the manuka on the bacteria? So what we do is use this technique called RNA sequencing. So this technique basically looks at what genes are being upregulated or downregulated in the entire bacteria after you expose them to honey. So what I'm trying to do is basically dissect the honey into the major different components. So that's things like sugar, also, when you have a particular chemical unique to the manuka honey, it's called methylglyoxal or MGO. So just that particular chemical. And then when you combine them with the sugar as well, and then we try to match it as closely as we can to the actual honey, expose the bacteria to these different treatments, and then have a look and see what genes are going up and what genes are going down and try and make sense of that jigsaw puzzle, I guess. 
So from what you learn from this, will this enable you to make new types of antibiotics? Yeah, so this is kind of what we're, we're thinking about because obviously you can't intravenously inject honey, unfortunately. Uh, don't think it'd be too good. And, and same thing when, when you eat the honey, it gets digested. So for some kind of a systemic treatment, we're interested in seeing what's so special and how this honey is able to kill these bacteria. What is it doing to the bacteria to kill them so they can't become resistant to it? And what we're interested in is trying to see if we can maybe reapply that in terms of like a drug, make a drug or a new target that someone can look at for developing a new antibiotic or even maybe a new synthetic honey. Are you just getting Manuka honey from the market or have you got somebody growing the bees for you or how does it work? So we actually source the honey straight from the hives. It's undergone very minimal processing. So what you would kind of expect in these medical grade honeys that are available for purchase in some pharmacies and also in hospital pharmacies too. So we know exactly where this honey comes from down to, you know, the specific coordinates, GPS coordinates. We know exactly when it was harvested, what time of year, who harvested it. So we have a big batch of this honey. Obviously there's variation between batch to batch, but you know, as a starting point, we're, we're, go we're going with one particular batch. And what we're hoping to do is show that this particular, I guess, workflow or way, way of looking at how the honey works, if we can show and demonstrate it works for one type of honey, then we hope to do the same for other batches of Manuka honey and other types of honeys as well. Let's say there's two questions here. So one is about the other types of honeys. Other types of honeys will, will also have antibacterial action, not just Manuka ones? Yeah, so other types of honeys do have antibacterial properties, but as I mentioned, some of them are less potent than the Manuka honey, and a lot of them have an antibacterial activity that's largely what we call peroxide type activity. And this is because in many honeys, not so much in Manuka honey, in fact, almost not at all, but in most other honeys, there's an enzyme called glucose oxidase that exists in the bee's saliva. And when the bees regurgitate the nectar into the hive, that enzyme goes in with the nectar. And when you dilute honey, with water, for example, or even maybe exudate from a wound, that particular enzyme will begin to convert glucose into hydrogen peroxide and some other products too. So hydrogen peroxide's been used obviously for a long time in treating cuts and grazes and preventing infection. So that's how we believe many other types of honeys have their antimicrobial activity. And for the Manuka honey, what sort of plants are the bees collecting nectar from that lets them put in this special factor? So the bees will go and visit a type of tree. It's called the Leptospermum scoparium or the Manuka bush. And this is typically found in New Zealand on the southern part of the Northern Island. But this particular genus of plant, the Leptospermum genus, we have 83 species of that in Australia. So... The theory, or I guess the hypothesis is that 
that plant originated in Australia and then that one species made its way over to New Zealand. So we typically call Manuka honeys, Leptospermum type honeys from New Zealand and then the other honeys um, in Australia that are from this same genus of tree. We just call them Lepto honeys. Sometimes people call them jelly bush as well. Can you get this same antibacterial factor from the plants? No, so it's actually really interesting because the nectar contains another chemical called DHA for short or dihydroxyacetone. And this particular chemical actually undergoes spontaneous dehydration in the matrix of the honey itself, in the, in, in the context of the sugars and all of the other things that are in, in the, the honey milieu. So it's unique. It, this MGO, which makes the Manuka honey kind of special, it's not the only thing, but it's a big factor. This comes from this, this DHA in the nectar of the tree and in the context of the honey in the hive, that's when it becomes this MGO. There's a lot of studies looking into this and, and I guess there's a lot of physics as well as chemistry involved in, in the honey that make it so special, yeah. Would you be using this information of how this complex forms to make it separate from the bees? I guess some people have looked at making some kind of synthetic or man-made manuka. I think there's a lot of concern about the bees and their health and the strain that we may be putting on bees if we're trying to take a lot of honey for medical purposes. But at the same time, a lot of beekeepers and people very familiar with bees would say that the practice of harvesting this honey and keeping bees is actually really important in sustaining really healthy populations because they're constantly monitoring the health of their hives and ensuring that they don't get sick. And if they do, that they don't spread further to other colonies. So in some ways there is an interest in a kind of synthetic type honey, I guess, so that you can try and control that batch to batch variation. But this is something that's existed for, you know, hundreds and thousands of years. And I think that it's just so complex that it's not going to be very easy to replicate the beauty of, you know, the natural honey. And is it just European bees that can make this honey or can the native sugar bag bees also make it? It's a good question. So this honey is usually just from the European honeybee. The reason is that a lot of the native bees will produce honey but in much smaller quantities something in the range of a couple kilos for a hive so it's not really feasible the other problem is that the native bees produce a honey that has a lot more water than the european honeybee so it can tend to ferment so in the first few weeks a week or two the native bee honey is great it's delicious after a week or two, it starts to get a bit funky, a bit kind of fermented, and it's not really so great, yeah. Today, antimicrobial resistance or superbugs are becoming a huge problem. And I think that there's a figure that gets thrown around quite a bit that something like 10 million deaths are likely to result from antimicrobial resistance in the year 2050. And a lot of that, I think, is because of the use of antimicrobials, I guess, uh, uh, in a, 
not uncontrolled way, but uh, probably more so than we really need to. And I think that something like honey could be a really good first line of defense. So often in the clinic, I know there's a couple of case studies where people have been at the point of amputation of a limb and honey's been suggested kind of like a last ditch, last, last resort treatment. But I really think that if we were to maybe use this medicinal honey as a first line of defense for kind of chronic wounds and acute wounds topically, it may mean that we're able to save some of these antibiotics for when we really do need them. So I really am a bit of an advocate for the use of medicinal honey, and I think that it, it, it does have a place in modern medicine. Yeah. Well, Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. That was PhD student Daniel Buzo from the I3 Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney, investigating how manuka honey and bacteria interact. Sydney University stand at the Consumer Electronics and Business Information Technology Exhibition, I spoke with Raylene Summer, who is an administrative officer at Penrith Observatory. I began by asking her, what is the Rhythmatron? My name is Raylene Summer and I'm an administrative officer at Penrith Observatory, Western Sydney University. And Raylene, we have something labelled here, the Rhythmatron. The Rhythmatron is a very engaging tool. It's based on the Chronomorph software. It's an algorithm that essentially uses mathematics to create patterns in music. So it's designed for making music. It was originally designed as an engagement tool as a way of showing that mathematics has purpose, so mathematics and music sort of combine together really well. We've got it attached to our Rhythmatron, which is a drum playing piano, and it's working really, really well to attract attention and get people over to our stall and talking to us. <laughs> I, I was wondering if so people are attracted to this, if what they, how they can learn more about what's going into it, what the maths is. The Chronomorph software is available for download, so you can download this to your computer and use it to generate music in a variety of different ways. So they just need to look on the University of Western Sydney website and search for Chronomorph? Yes, Chronomorph or Rhythmatron. <laughs> and you can tell me about Penrith Observatory. Penrith Observatory has been in place for 24 years and has been primarily an outreach tool and engagement tool for the university. We run public programs twice a month and we're also available for private bookings, both daytime and nighttime, school groups, interest groups, parties, anything you've got, we can arrange it. And what sort of telescopes do you have? Our big telescope upstairs is a 60 centimetre diameter Cassegrain telescope. So we're able to look at a lot of fairly faint objects with this telescope. We also have a range of other telescopes that we use for our programs as well that range in size from uh, 8 inch through to 16 inch mirrors. And do you only do nighttime observing? We do nighttime observing primarily, but we do have a solar scope, so we, we undertake solar observing as well. 
And if people want to go and use the telescopes or just see the observatory, what should they do? Best thing to do is go to our website. So if you Google Penrith Observatory, we'll find, you'll find us. We're right on the top of the list. You can have a look at all of our public programs. We've Go to the What's On page. There's a full list there of everything we offer. Uh, we're also really excited about the world record stargazing attempt that's happening on the 23rd of May. So we're going to have, across Australia, as many people stargazing in multiple locations in one country, and we're going to smash the record. Well, Raylene Summer, thank you very much. My pleasure. That was Raylene Summer from Penrith Observatory at Western Sydney University. The music software to download is called Chronomorph, spelt X-R-O-N-O-M-O-R-P-H. I'll put a download link in the show notes. The attempt for the Guinness World Records title for most people stargazing across multiple locations was successful, with over 40,000 people all looking at the moon through individual telescopes for the same 10 minutes. Congratulations! Transcendental word that'll be a worthless piece of shite Along with all the endeavors of humankind Against the computer brains Transhuman mind So shut up and wait for the singularity What you say and do is meaningless To the greatness that will be
was Paul Rhodes singing The Singularity, lyrics by Alan Thomas. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio and support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound and fact-checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia, to 27 stations on the community radio network, including 2RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com that's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash Diffusion Radio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography, collecting. Why study science?
study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.